Hi everyone, you are listening to the Limitless Grid podcast. Today's guest is Steven Sashin, a man of many talents. From being a stand-up comedian to creating scriptware, an essential tool for film and TV writers, he has done it all. Now as the founder of Zero Shoes, he has turned his need for minimalist footwear into a $50 million a year business. We spoke to Steven about his unique life journey and the hard work towards the success of Zero Shoes. We had a fantastic time talking to him and we are sure you will enjoy listening it too. So let's get started. Steven, yeah, thanks once again for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, my pleasure. Looking forward to what's next. So we wanted to start by asking, you were a um, psychology major. Like, how did you end up becoming a uh, stand-up comedian? Oh, geez, that is not where I, where I thought we were going to go. Um, well, let's see. I <laughs> started doing, I started performing doing magic when I was a kid, when I was about 12 years old. And whenever the magic that I did, it was always sort of comedic um, in nature. And then I kept doing that. And when I was in college, uh, they opened a comedy club near me. And so I, I went there and auditioned and they used me as the house MC. So I'd be there every week introducing the other acts. And I did, I started writing some comedy, um, started doing some, um, still had some magic in there, but mostly just adding more comedy and getting rid of the magic. And then the guy who booked that club uh, booked 10 other clubs around the Southeast of America. And he said, when you graduate college, I can give you 10 weeks on the road. So I realized I could take one extra class and graduate early. And I graduated early and went on the road for 10 weeks. And that 10 weeks turned into 10 months and that 10 months turned into 10 years. Wow. 10 years? Wow. Stand up for 10 years and then ended up um, uh, inventing a piece of computer software for film and television writers. And it seemed like pursuing that would have been a mm, more interesting and lucrative and less crazy yeah. way of making a living. So I started, so I did that. Yeah. We do want to dive deeper into uh, the software you wrote. Um, before then, how was your experience as a comedian? Were you on the road for the most time? It depends. I spent a lot of time on the road. My first year I spent on the road pretty much entirely. And then at the end of that year, I ended up moving to New York City. I One night I was uh, working in a club in Houston, Texas with a woman who, a comic who helped run uh, the a big deal club in um, New York called Catch a Rising Star. And she was one of the three people that could approve comics to let them come and hang out and then work at Catch a Rising Star. And she said, um, you know, what are you going to do next? I said, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to have to move somewhere. And she said, well, I would say you moved to New York because I'm going to pass you and catch. And so, and that's a rare thing. So you should wow. just come to New York. Yeah. So that's what I did. And then I, I did, I'd work in and around New York City and then I'd fly to various places um, and work on the road as well. So just, it was half hanging out or, you know, within a few hours of this, of New York and half flying all over the country. So was it the first time you visited New York City at that point? No. Uh, the first time I visited New York, well, there's two components. The first time I visited New York was when I was 15, and my parents took me there for my birthday. And I did not like it at all. So that was uh, interesting. <laughs> and then when I was 20, I think I was 20, 19 or 20, um, I had in the interim, um, I had created an, an act where I was street performing. So I was just literally in Washington, D.C. doing magic on right off the corner of a main intersection um, in Georgetown. And I got the idea of going to New York to street perform. In fact, actually, what happened was I heard about a summer class at New York University 
about comedy that I thought I would want to take. So I applied to go and get into that class and I show up and they say, you didn't get the letter that the class was canceled? I said, no, but for some reason they gave me my money back for the class, but they let me still have housing at New York University, which was one block away from this big park called Washington Square Park, uh, where a lot of street right. performers hung out. And I also was still on the meal plan. So I had basically free food for all practical purposes and somewhere to stay. So I spent that summer uh, doing my act. In fact, uh, the act that I originally was doing in Washington, D.C., within about two weeks, I, I just started seeing other people copying my act. And I met this one very famous street performer. And I said, well, what do I do? And he said, oh, you have to write an act that nobody would dare steal. So I thought about that for a little while. And I put together an act that involved some magic, uh, but also involved gymnastics. I was an all-American gymnast. So this act, you know, had wow. like stunts in it and some magic in it. The The finale of the act was walking over a pile of broken glass on my bare feet and then uh, throwing someone over my shoulders who weighed about 200 pounds, doing the same thing, walking backwards, uh, then taking off my shirt and lying down and having people jump on me. And so um, that's what I, so I, so I spent two summers in New York doing that. And then I'm, but the first time I officially moved was, I guess, um, oh, it was, it was like Christmas 1983. So that's my first time actually living there, living there. Um, I wanted to ask you, like, how did you come up with scriptware while you were a stand-up comedian? Um, after a few years of doing comedy, I had a lot of spare time in the day. So basically my job when I was doing stand-up was to spend a couple hours of every day making phone calls to try to get booked for gigs and then a couple hours mm -hmm. in the night of working. And uh, and I, actually the first couple of years I worked almost every night and many times every night and did, did multiple shows every night. Then I get, was getting a little tired. And I was just trying to think of what else was interesting to me. And I met a guy who um, was going applied to film school at Columbia University and that seemed like a good combination of things for me. I was already doing some acting. I uh, liked writing. I was writing comedy. Um, it seemed like you know good plan. So I applied to Columbia Film School, and somehow they let me in. I think because I could could pay for it. And while I was writing, screenplays have to be in a very particular and peculiar format. Don't know why. Just the way it's happened. And to write with a regular word processor in that format is almost impossible. It's just too confusing and, and too difficult in many ways. Uh, and the only software that existed at the time would take what you wrote um, kind of awkwardly and then reformat it into the proper format. But if you did anything wrong or if you changed anything, you had to go back and forth and back and forth. It was a real hassle. My undergraduate research when I was at Duke University was in cognitive aspects of motor skill acquisition. I was a cognitive psychology major. And I am, I have this weird thing in my brain where I'm very aware of why specifically I'm feeling frustrated. So if I'm wanted, if my body's trying to do something, but it's, but something's getting in the way of that, I'm very aware of the, of the specifics of that. Don't know why. So I realized that there's sort of a pattern when you're typing a screenplay that if you're just using a regular typewriter, tab and enter, there's just certain patterns that are identifiable. And I realized that for the different elements in a screenplay, like a character's name, the dialogue that they say, the description of what you see on the screen, the description of where the scene is taking place, there's just some patterns that I extracted from that. And I realized that if I could identify those patterns, then I would be able to know what the appropriate element is that you're trying to type. 
and I can take care of all the weird formatting and pagination, and actually just the weird formatting rules, capitalization, margins, et cetera. And then I realized if the different mm -hmm. elements, character name and dialogue, action, <clears throat> scene heading, et cetera, knew where they were in relation to each other and knew where they were in relation to the page, I could do all the formatting, all the very complex and confusing formatting, completely automatically, in real time, what you see is what you get on the screen with no extra keystrokes, in fact, fewer keystrokes than ever before. And I somewhat um, fortuitously, I was, so I was going to comedy clubs, I'd have a laptop with me because I was writing screenplays for film school, and I'd bump into a guy at a comedy club who has a t-shirt from PC Magazine, which at the time was the big you know, industry magazine. And I said, he said to me, what are you doing with a laptop at a comedy club? I said, what are you doing with a PC Magazine t-shirt? And <laughs> we started talking, and it just so happened that the way I was describing what I wanted wasn't possible until like that day when he had gotten an, a pre-release version of a programming language that would allow us to do all this elements knowing where they are in relation to each other in the page in a way that had never been done before. So um, while I was still doing stand-up, I spent the next three years working with him and a couple other programmers that I ended up hiring to wow. develop the software. Okay. I also wanted to ask you, I think, like I've heard that um, stand-up comedy is one of the hardest jobs in the world. Do you think the skills that you learned as a stand-up comedian helped you to create this business and, you know, make it successful? Y yes. Um, first of all, the people who say it's the hardest job in the world, um, there are many, many jobs way harder than talking to people for a couple hours. So it's um, the, the thing that's difficult with any performing art in particular is there are people who are responsible for whether you get to work or not. And even until you get to a very, very high level, when even then you don't necessarily control all of your life. So it's, uh, it's challenging. But those of us who've done it, we just really like doing it for very various reasons. So, or some of us are just compelled to, or some of us just have no choice. I mean, my, I haven't been on a comedy club stage, oh boy, in probably 30 years but I write jokes every day. Not that I sit, I don't sit down and write them, but they come to me and I write them down. And my wife said, are you ever going to stop doing that? I went, no, I was doing this before I became a standup. I was doing it while I was a standup. This is the way my brain works. And, um, I'm sell, I, I sell a few to friends of mine every now and then, but, or I give them away more often than not. Uh, but sometimes all I do is call one of my best friends and say, here's the latest. And we just riff on that. Um, uh, but I know a lot of comics from my era who stopped doing professional stand-up comedy and got other jobs. And they all, we all say the same thing. It's kind of like having a superpower because when you're on, mm. when you're doing comedy and you're at least mildly successful, you, you basically become somewhat unflappable. No, like no one can say anything that will stump you, especially in a high pressure situation, like being on television or mm -hmm. being in front of investor, potential investors, like high pressure situations is where we do our best thinking. Um, when we're off stage and not having to kind of be in that sort of mindset, um, you know, we can be less skilled and gifted and less, um, uh, less, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? polite and, um, and people can get upset because, <laughs> you know, one of the problems with doing stand-up and getting good at it is that you end up typically thinking differently and faster than other people. 
and they find that mm. rather unpleasant when you're just like going at a speed that they can't quite follow. But the superpower that you get is not only being unshakable, unflappable in a high pressure situation, but also um, just being able to, to, to be funny is very helpful. It can be very disarming. With, with what we're doing now with Zero Shoes, I've made a lot of comedic videos and they get a lot more attention than just you know, regular ads. And so part of what we're trying to do actually is get me out of many of the things I have to do on a daily basis that have nothing to do with you know, creating content right. and being funny so I can do more content creation and being funny. Um, and it's also um, like in, a, in high pressure situations, it's very disarming to be able to be funny. And it makes people more comfortable. It makes people sometimes like you better. Mm -hmm. Makes sometimes they like you less because you've just joked about something they don't want to joke about. But um, that's okay. So, so there's that. And I'm trying to think if there are any other real skills. Um, I when I from doing stand up, um, becoming a copywriter was relatively straightforward because it's all about finding the word sometimes or the order of words that works best and being willing to experiment with that and see what happens. Like I say this, uh, this is true for, for me as a marketer, but it comes from stand-up in a way, which is I've been doing this a very long time and I'm really good at it, which means I have a lot of opinions. But it also means that I don't care what any of those opinions are. I just want to see if it works. And that's the way comedy works. Mm. You write a joke, you're sure it's hysterical. You get on stage and either... It doesn't work at all, and then you find a way to make it work, or it doesn't work at all, and then you realize it's never going to work, or and you maybe you have to give it to somebody else, or it works immediately, and then you never get it to work again, <laughs> or it works immediately, and then it doesn't work for a while, and then you kind of figure it out. But it's this continual process of experimenting, and you never – I mean, some people – I know a couple of people who their act, they had it down verbatim. They'd start with one word and they'd mm -hmm. end with the last word and every word in between was exactly what they said in the order they said it for every night for five years. I, I couldn't do that. And most comics don't do that. They're always trying to tweak it a little bit, even if it's working really well. Like, let's see what we can do. And, oh, that just killed it. All right. So let's go back and do it the other way. So it's that has carried through. Experimentation and iteration. And that is what you have to do with your company as well. Any any. Anyone who tells you that, you know, when people say to me, they, they contact me and they want me to spend money with them for some sort of marketing thing, I always say to them, you're not 100%, right? You don't bat 1,000, which is 100%. And they go, well, no. I go, well, I have to work on the assumption that you're not going to be successful with me. I need to control my risk. I need to know how much it's going to cost me to find out if you're full of it or not. And I have to work on the assumption that you are. And um, it's sometimes that uh, does not make me friends because I'm pointing things out that they don't want to admit. Um, sometimes um, it works out well. Um, but my, my goal as a marketer is always to find out as cheaply and quickly as I can whether someone can do the job right. they claim they can do. Because not everyone's good at everything. You know, like think about video production. Some people shoot pretty pictures really well, but couldn't shoot narrative. They couldn't shoot a acting scene and the other way around. And some people are really good with you know certain shooting action, but they couldn't do anything where it's just two people sitting in front of a window talking. So there's that component too. You got to find what people are are good at. Yeah. So you mentioned that it took you three years to release scriptware. Were you still in New York City at that point? I was still in New York, and then once I realized 
let's see, it launched 92. Yeah, once I realized after about six or eight months that I didn't have to be in New York any longer because I wasn't performing as much mm. and I was going to go into the software business full time, I went, hmm, where would I like to go? And I moved to Boulder, Colorado. That was pretty much sight unseen. I'd never been there before. I went, ah, I'll go right. check it out. And I went, it came out for a week and went, yeah, I could live here. And then two months later, there, there I was. Mm. Did you know anybody there or you just threw a dart? And I knew, <laughs> I knew of Boulder. Um, I didn't know anybody when I thought about going, I didn't know anybody there. I, uh, my father had a friend who had kid, a, a son, my age who was living there with his wife. It's actually kind of funny and said, Oh, you know, you can stay with my, my son and his, and his, uh, wife. And so I called them and said, you know, Hey, I'm Steven. Your dad called you about me. And they said, no. Oh, uh, well, this will be weird because he told me to call you because he had already told you that I was going to call to see if I could stay with you for a week while I was coming to check out Boulder. And they said, I don't know why they said this, but uh. they said, sure. But in our house, we don't wear shoes and we are vegetarians and we don't smoke. I said, that sounds like my house. So uh, I came out and, and uh. in fact, I came out to Colorado for a workshop uh, up in the mountains and I just happened there was one guy there who was from boulder so i got a ride with him to hang out with these two other people and those are the only three people that i knew for probably i don't know the first three months that i lived here wow interesting is, is that where you met your wife in boulder did at a uh, a whole bunch of friends and friends of friends got together for brunch and that, i met her at that brunch which would have been um not awkward if I wasn't there with a woman who was then my fiance and we were going to go look for a place to have a wedding that day. So, um, wow. That, wow. that was a little awkward. Not really for me. I mean, my, my fiance was upset. She was a tall Nordic woman. I am neither of those things uh, or net, none of the three of those. I'm not tall Nordic or a woman. And, and she was very upset saying, you should be getting married to someone like that. Cause my wife, Lena is, um, a shorter person who is in money. My ex had this thing I do about what tribe you're in. So you guys are in the same tribe. And I said, I haven't dated anyone shorter than me in like 10 years. So I don't know what you're talking about, but in the back of my mind, I was going, wow, you're totally right. So, um, so, uh, Monique and I split up for completely unrelated reasons. Uh, Lena ignored me like the plague for a while, even though she ended up living with a friend of mine, so she couldn't avoid me entirely. And then we were friends for three or four years before we became a couple. And then we were uh, a couple for three and a half years, engaged actually for three and a half years before we then got married. Your wife is also your business partner. Was it a conscious decision or it just happened by luck? Pretty much luck. Well, neither and worse. So what happened for Zero Shoes, the way it started, I had gotten back into sprinting, this is about 16 years ago when I was 45, and was getting injured all the time for about two years. And a friend of mine suggested that I take off my shoes, see what happened if I learned anything by running barefoot, uh, read the book Born to Run by Chris McDougall, which talked about the Tatamara mm -hmm. Indians who run in thin sandals made of scraps of tires or sometimes barefoot as well. And, uh, and so I went out for my first barefoot run. Uh, and I, to make it, make a long story short, I discovered that I had a form problem that I couldn't feel when I was wearing a regular shoe, but running barefoot, basically, if you have bad form, it hurts and good form feels good. And so the first run was a little painful. The second run, I tried to figure out how to 
change things so it wouldn't be painful. And I found a way to do that. So my injuries then went away. I became faster. So for the last 15 years, I've been a master's all-American sprinter, which means for men in my age wow. group, there's five-year age groups in track and field uh, for master's track and field. I've been one of the top 15 or 20 fastest guys in the country for the last 15 years. So I wanted this barefoot-like experience as often as I could have it, but I got tired of arguing with people about whether it was legal to be in a restaurant in bare feet. By the way, it is. Um, they can have a rule, but it's not illegal. And my wife was getting tired of me coming in with my bare feet onto our white carpeting. So I made a pair of sandals based on a 10,000-year-old design idea similar to the Tarumara. And um, someone said that I've had a, and then I ended up making them for other, other people. And one day someone said, if you had a website for this sandal making hobby of yours, I could put you in a book that I'm writing. So I rush home and I pitch this incredible opportunity to my wife who tells me it's a horrible thing, horrible thing, won't work at all, is a waste of time, effort, and money, and you know, insisted that I not do it. So I told her I wouldn't. And then she went to bed and I did. And so I built a website and um, she kind of got mad at me. But we, were, we had just started a search engine marketing business because I'd been an internet marketer now you know, for, oh gosh, I've been doing it now for over 30 years. And, and um, so I just said, look, it'll be a good case study for our search engine business. Don't worry about it. But within six weeks, it was clear this was going to be our full-time job. And that's when she said, okay, mm. I'm all in. So I'm a product and marketing person. She's a finance operations kind of person. So mm. we never really right. talked about it. She just realized, oh, if this is going to be real, you need me. And we just jumped in. One of the main reasons why we were really excited to talk to you is because we we both you know, are runners. And especially me, I had a similar story. So a few years ago, Shristi and I, we both were training for a marathon. And for some reason, I believe I had, I had bad form as well. And I would constantly hurt my ankle, my knee, and lower back. And, and then I looked up online saying, what is happening? And that's when I realized about, or rather, that's when I learned about the minimalist movement, people running with barefoot shoes. And I learned about zero shoes as well. And since then, you know, I've been wearing zero shoes. Um. There are a lot of runners who will, who just won't think about switching. They're convinced that what we're doing is wrong. They they think things like, well, if this was real, this whole barefoot slash minimalist thing was real, then why don't the big shoe companies do it? And the answer to that, by the way, is yeah. because the big shoe companies know that if they were doing something like what we do, they've literally said this to people that we know, that it would be like admitting they've been lying for 50 years, which, by the way, they have been. Mm. And I can say more about that in a second. But um, for people who are going to run in, quote, normal shoes, regular shoes, there's research showing that if people like that just do an eight-week exercise program for their feet, their risk of injury over the course of a year, it was a year-long study, is reduced by 250%. Now, some people aren't wow. going to do a simple exercise program for their feet, even if you could do it while you're watching TV. They'll just not do it. So, good news. There's research wow. showing that instead of doing the exercise program, you can build the same amount of strength in your feet just by walking in shoes like ours. So if you want to run in some big yeah. normal you know, padded shoe, then I'd recommend get out of those shoes as, as soon as you're done running, wear something like ours. That will build foot strength. That's proven. And this foot strength, based on the exercise program, is shown to reduce the risk of injury. Now, there isn't a study yet just showing wear our shoes, have fewer injuries running in regular shoes. But again, do the math. Wearing our shoes builds foot strength as much as the exercise program. The exercise program is the thing that reduced injury risk. 
So I say, mm. great. And besides, if you do that, then your running shoes won't wear out as fast because many people will just keep wearing their running shoes as their daily shoe, which makes them wear out faster. So you'll get more mileage out of those things. But I will admit there's a bit of a mm, Trojan horse there because like you said, once you start wearing things like zero shoes, at some point you just can't go back because the comfort of it and the natural movement is just, that's what we're supposed to do. And our body and brain just goes, yeah, that's correct. Also wanted to ask, um, when you started Zero Shoes, it looked completely different than what we have now. And I was curious, like, how did you build your thousand true fans or your first thousand customers? Because it was a do-it-yourself, like, uh, hack or a kit where people had to create their own shoes, but still, like, you grew really fast. So how did you do that? It was my things that I did that I'll describe. Some of it was had nothing to do with me. And the biggest thing that had nothing to do with me was the book Born to Run came out. And when it first came out, it didn't get a lot of attention. But by mm, the end of 2009, uh, it was getting a lot of attention. And so, A, I built a mm. website. Uh, B... I made videos showing how to make a sandal based on a 10,000 year old design. Even if you didn't buy the materials from us, like here's how to do it. And it was three videos actually, because at the time uh, YouTube limited you to 10 minutes. And so I had to, I had to break it down into three parts. And so I made that video uh, and I posted those videos on every video channel or every video um, platform there were and there was like 30 at the time so I just blanketed the internet with videos I wrote a number of articles I posted those everywhere that I could and um, and then anytime Chris McDougall was doing a book signing somewhere we'd get a bunch of traffic and then I started going around and I'd put our business cards in, in copies of his book anytime I walked by a bookstore so a little guerrilla marketing there it's very clever I, I, it wasn't originally my idea. It was an, it was a version of a, of something that someone told me. He wrote he self published a book, and what he would do is he'd go to bookstores and just put a few in the right section. And so when someone picked up the book and took it to go buy it, it wasn't in their computer, so they had to call him to order the book. But the other thing wow. that I did back then, there were very few places to sort of congregate and have a conversation online. Um, mostly like um, oh, what was it called? Not Google Groups. It was a it was a Google thing um, that doesn't even exist, kind of like Reddit, basically, but it was a Google thing. And so I got involved in every conversation that I could find about barefoot running and running injuries, and I just tried to provide value. I wasn't trying to sell things. I was just like throwing out my experience, um, pointing people to our website so that if they did want to try out what I was describing, they could do that. But that was like in the my, my signature line. I wasn't – I was just – there to share with people the information. I pointed people to the videos where they could just learn how to do everything that I did for free and they could replicate what I did. There were a couple of companies that started just by watching my videos and just recreating what I did. Um, quite comically, they would say, you know, I couldn't find the kind of product that I want, so I had to make my own. And then it's exactly like mine. So I thought that was pretty entertaining. <laughs> um, when people are ripping you off, it's, you know, sometimes a good sign. And so the early days was just creating content, syndicating it, and getting in places where I could basically get a friend of mine has a great line, making money is easy. Find out where the money is flowing and get in the middle of the flow. So another way of thinking about that is find the people who are already interested in what you're doing, get involved in the conversation and yeah. offer something of value. You mentioned regarding, you know, wearing shoes, wearing, wearing, wearing minimalist shoes. 
is equivalent to foot exercise you know i i believe dr sara rage has a research on that that's one <laughs> one of the main you know one of the key differences that i found after wearing zero shoes is that you know the veins on the feet kind of popped off i mean you know when you, if you think of it this way um if you break your arm and i'm not suggesting you do it i'm saying if someone were to break their arm um uh and you put it in a cast it comes out weaker i mean it's not confusing to anybody and so then you have two choices never use it again keep it keep it uh um supported or start using it again and you're going to build strength and muscle well if you haven't been using your feet for right. a long time same thing happens if you're in a shoe that's stiff or that squeezes your toes together you're not using your foot if you have arch support you're not using the muscles in your arch so that's making things weaker and that will change everything about your foot it'll change the shape of it it'll change the circulation patterns it'll change everything you start using your foot naturally again and you'll see changes i can't make any promises about some of these but i mean like for me i had really mm. crazy flat feet my whole life and now that's not true there i have some arch now arch height is predominantly genetic strength though is the most important thing and my feet have gotten really really strong so that's uh, and and my foot as my arch developed my foot got a little bit shorter and my toes spread a little and got a little wider so and some people have hmm. will find you know different changes some people won't find any change some people will find whole and there's a whole range of possibilities but the the gist of it is that using your feet naturally is a thing that can build strength that can help with balance that can help with agility i mean it can help with everything you know feet are your foundation right and if you're not using your foundation correctly if it's shaky because you're on in a regular shoe with foam that breaks down for example you know you can't fix a shaky foundation of your house by changing the curtains you got to work on the foundation hmm. so you you mentioned two things breaking breaking your arm and flat feet so that brings me to another story of mine 3 months ago i was rock climbing and i fell and i my So long story short after you know after being bedridden for a few months and starting my physiotherapy you know the first thing my physiotherapist mentioned is that i have really really flat feet and you know i need to get rid of my zero shoes uh buy a shoe that has an arch that can support my you know that got to push my flat feet and make it a little bit more arched so what do you have to say for that that's ridiculous um the the simplest thing i can say this this is going to be tricky um if someone believes they need arch support what i'm about to say will not convince them that they're wrong because i'm going to be giving them giving sharing a piece of data and here's the thing that we know facts do not change people's minds so if someone's listening who believes they need arch support mm-hmm. my apologies in advance i know this will not change your mind but i'm going to say it anyway There's research from uh Katrina Protopapas where she took healthy people who had not been using arch support and then she put arch support in their shoes. And within 12 weeks, they had lost up to 17% of the strength and muscle mass in their feet. Think about it. It's just like putting your arm in a cast. You're not letting your arch function. You're not using those muscles, ligaments and tendons in your feet. They get weaker. Mm. Can you think of a time that weaker is better than stronger? I can't. So, now here's the thing with arch support. It can right. feel really good. Why does it feel really good? Because you're not using your muscles, ligaments and tendons. Lying down feels good because you get to not use things. Lie down long enough and you won't be able to stand up again. 
So this is the I, this is the basic thing. And because for the last fifty years, shoe companies have been convincing people that you need arch support and motion control and padding and other things, people believe it. And more, the idea of arch support, when it was invented, it wasn't invented as something that you're supposed to wear full time. It was invented as something you're supposed to wear part time while you're while some injury is healing itself because it's not letting your foot move. It's like if you're in a car accident and you get whiplash, you put on a neck brace so your head doesn't move while your neck heals. But nobody would suggest you're supposed to wear the neck brace for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. especially you know if, they, if you said, hey, my wrist hurts. And they go, oh, that's starting with your neck, so let's put you in a neck brace. Either one of those you'd think was ridiculous. But that's what's happening with arch support. So the, ironically, the reason... So the first thing was arch support was invented just be like a cast for your arm. But once people thought that you could uh, give it to everybody and charge a bunch of money for it, then that was another incentive. But even more than that, the design of the modern athletic shoe creates the kind of stress on your arch that makes you want to have support. Your feet, feet are fully extended when you're not using your arch. That's in a weak position. And if you, so if you're running or walking and you land on your heel and let your foot then come to the ground, your foot's fully extended. Mm-hmm. It's in a weak position when it's supposed to be supporting you in a strong position. So that's like putting the too heavy weight in your fully straight arm versus using your arch and aligning your body like the arm at a 90 degree angle and then having all that weight put on it. So arch support. So the design of the modern shoe puts people's feet in a vulnerable position that can create these problems. And then rather than saying, hey, we messed up, we should make a different shoe, they say, oh, well, actually, they don't even say it. Then there's a multi-billion dollar industry for art support. And the research on art support, in addition to showing that it makes your feet weaker over time because it's not letting you move, the research shows that art support only works for about 10% of the people. And and a very Mm -hmm. expensive custom-made orthotic is no better than something you just buy off the shelf for $10 at Walmart. So the research is very uh, clear that art support is not a solution. And here's the other joke about that. If it was a solution, the shoe companies would just build it all into their shoes the way instead of having to go out and buy something separate, or they'd be selling those, those inserts themselves so you wouldn't be giving your money to some other company. Why haven't they done that? Because it doesn't work. I was going to ask what started this movement where these billion-dollar companies started to make narrow shoes with, with a heel height. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Let me, uh, I'll answer that, but first I have to say what's really funny. Have you watched the movie Air about the Air Jordan shoe? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. No, when, no. when you watch it, pay attention to these three things. One, uh, Phil Knight, who is the CEO of Nike, is often shown walking around barefoot. Thing number two, whenever they show runners, they're running with great form, landing on the ball of their foot underneath their body. They're not overstriding and heel striking with their foot way out in front of them. So they have good form. Three, when they give Michael Jordan the first shoe, they say something like, I'm paraphrasing, we know you like you know, to be really low to the ground, so we'll shave it off and make it lower for you. So the first Air Jordan was basically a minimalist high top sneaker. So the question, wow. why the shoes look like they do, why do they look like this with this pointy toe box, etc.? I can answer everything except the pointy toe box. I have no idea why that happened. That was a mystery to me. I like to say to people, is this the shape of your foot? And they go, no. I said, then why are you putting a foot-shaped thing 
called your foot in a non-foot shaped thing called that shoe. Can you imagine what that might do for you? And they go, oh yeah, that could make me uncomfortable and make it so I can't use my feet. It's like, yeah, why are you doing that? They go, well, that's all there is. I go, oh, that's all there was. So I don't have an answer for that. But for everything else, I do have an answer. If you look at the first Nike waffle trainer, it was basically a minimalist shoe. It was flat. It was about 10 millimeters of foam. That's it. A little bit of you know rubber underneath there. It still had a kind of pointy toe box, but I don't know why. Not a clue. Maybe easier to make. I have no idea. Uh, but it was a minimalist shoe. It was really lightweight. It was wonderful. Then the question, why did they go to this wedged heel, this higher elevated heel? And it's because Bill Bowerman, who created Nike, was complaining mm-hmm. to um, some sports podiatrists or orthopedic podiatrists who were in the same building they were in when they just got started, that he had new runners coming to them who were getting Achilles tendonitis. And the doctor said, oh, it must be because they've been wearing higher heel dress shoes, so their Achilles have shortened. And so if you want to accommodate that, just put a wedge of foam to make a higher heel so it accommodates their Achilles. Okay, so uh, they did that. When you elevate your heel, you end up tending to land on your heel. Your heel is a ball. A ball is unstable. So now they had to try to build in motion control. Spoiler alert, if you weigh 150 pounds, for example, and you're running at a normal speed, when you land, you're hitting the ground with 400 to 600 pounds of force. There is no motion control that can accommodate that, that can do anything about that. None. Secondly, um, oh, if you've been told that you pronate and that's a problem, you pronate because you're landing on your heel where you have no control. But pronation normally is actually not a problem. It's a made-up problem to sell things like orthotics. That's a longer story. Because if you watch like professional runners who are running often in flat shoes, they may pronate a ton because pronation is actually a part of the spring mechanism of your entire leg from your hip all the way down to your toes. But anyway... So you have motion control, so you're unstable. They try, or so you have, uh, you're landing on your heel, that's unstable. They try to build in motion control to control that. It doesn't work. Then if you're landing, like we talked about before, on your heel with your foot out in front of you, when your foot comes down, it's fully extended, putting strain on your plantar fascia. So then they build in the arch support. So every part of the modern athletic shoe, except the pointy toe part that I don't understand, is just a result of this original idea of let's put a wedge of foam in there. Cut two the end of this story where one of those doctors was at a track meet with a friend of mine, a guy who I've actually designed a couple shoes with, who worked directly with Bill Bowerman for about 30 years. And my friend says to this doctor, your idea, making a wedged heel shoe, is now the design basically of every footwear that's been made, or performance footwear that's been made ever since. What do you think about that? And the doctor said, it was the biggest mistake we ever made. We had no evidence for this Achilles shortening idea. We had no evidence that putting a wedged heel would be effective. We definitely didn't know it would have the impact that it did, which is causing a bunch of problems. And sorry, last I realized the last part though. The footwear industry is predominantly people who are not very creative. And as the your business gets bigger, um, how do I, people, the way people have started shoe companies is just by copying some other shoe and then maybe making a minor change to it at best. Sometimes it's really no different at all, but just marketing, just, you know, different look. They market it to a different audience, just 100% marketing. So it's a bunch of people copying things. So as Nike started selling stuff, everyone else was terrified they'd never sell another shoe. So they started 
copying that same design. Mm. And you see it now. When Hoka came out with a big thick shoe, everyone thought it was ridiculous until Hoka started, their sales started going way up. And then everyone started copying it as fast as they could. And now the research is coming out showing those things aren't necessarily good for you because foam is basically tuned to a particular speed and weight. Like all foam sucks energy out of your system, bottom line. Um, it absorbs energy. It doesn't give it back to you. It just sucks energy out. But uh, how badly it sucks energy out of your system depends on how much you weigh and how fast you're running, what your ground contact time is, how much force you're applying to the ground, basically. And if you're not the right weight running at the right speed for a particular type of foam, it really gets in the way badly. So as a sprinter, someone gave me one of those big, thick Nike Vaporflies. I couldn't take two steps in it as a sprinter because I'm on the ground for such a short period of time, the foam was still compressing as I'm trying to get off the ground. It literally felt like I was trying to run in quicksand. Um, someone gave them to me just you know because they were curious what happened, and I, I couldn't take more than two steps till I had to take them off. I also wanted to ask, like these companies, they have so much money for marketing, and when you started, you started with zero, like nothing. Um, how was it competing with them in a industry that they monopolized for so long? Um, it's really hard for well. There's certain aspects that are hard, certain aspects that are easy. So the hard part is that is not that they monopolize it as much as they have spent 40 to 50 years teaching people things that they now believe are true that are not true, mm -hmm. that your feet are somehow not built for handling the things you do, that running is inherently painful, that cushioning will help you deal with that, which it doesn't, that uh, art support is good for, I mean, all the things that we talked about, they've convinced people so much that they don't need to advertise those ideas at all. Everyone believes it. So overcoming that is the most challenging thing because when someone has a belief, this is true for all of us, and someone gives us mm -hmm. some information to contradict that belief, our first goal is to prove that person wrong. You know, we hold on to our beliefs. It's part of who we are. And so that's really tricky. So it's a challenging marketing problem project to find a way to get people to be curious enough to consider that maybe there's a better alternative than what they're currently wearing without saying you're wrong without saying that you've been lied mm. to although you have um, you know it's just a tricky thing to to get through the the beliefs that people have been taught that are not true the second thing is these companies have gotten so big that people just have their identity linked to those brands I'm a Nike guy. I'm mm -hmm. an Adidas guy. I'm a whatever. So similarly, that's challenging. And the only opportunity there is just time and experience and performance. And I mean, that's just, you know, happens as a company gets to a certain size and you're working with the kind of people that their customers would like to emulate. You know, I want to be like Mike is sort of one of those ideas from Nike. On the other hand, it's really easy because we are telling such an unusual story and we can, A, go after the people that are already curious about what we're doing, or B, the biggest thing that sells our product is people putting it on their feet. And so the experience is so profound that word of mouth is the number one thing that drives our sales. So that's easy. All we have to do is keep making good products that change people's lives, and then they take care of the rest. Now, and then we help them do that, and we use some of the things that they've 
the content they've created, for example, to help promote what we're doing. So that part's relatively straightforward. I was also curious, like, how did Zero Shoes get into Shark Tank? How was the process? And uh, did you have a good experience? Well, in fact, that's another thing about uh, marketing is there's opportunities like that for small companies that are not available to bigger companies. So um, there, there's a lot of little things that all add up. Uh, the way we got on Shark Tank was after we got the, had started the business, we had a lot of people saying to us, you should be on Shark Tank, and we didn't know what they were talking about. So we started watching the show, and we're thinking, oh, yeah, we should totally be on that show, which is what almost everybody thinks when they're watching that show. But we actually had a business, and we were thinking we should be on that show. So uh, we, I didn't know any better. Uh, I looked online, and it there were some application ideas. And so I just sent them an email that, you know, said we should be on the show. I didn't realize that they actually only looked at those emails during a certain period of time, starting usually around April. And so I waited till April and I sent another email and I made a video about who we were and I sent that in too. And then we got a phone call a little while later um, on a Thursday in May of 20, uh, 2012 saying, hey, we got your email. We're really interested. Let's talk. And we had a really good conversation for about an hour. They said, we need to get a video of you answering a whole bunch of these questions, just a five-minute video, no more, and we need it by Tuesday. And I said, no problem, uh, not knowing that my wife had been planning a surprise 50th birthday party for me, and she had flown in my family. and her. I mean, so she was panicked. I had no idea. Uh, party went off fine. I was totally surprised. We shot the video on Sunday. We got it to them on Tuesday. And then there's this really complicated, long application form that needs to be handwritten. And we have horrible handwriting. So we typed out our answers and paid for someone on Craigslist to handwrite it. Uh, and after that, they send you a contract, which is very one-sided. Um, and there's nothing you can change about it. You either agree to give up your life story for three years or you don't. And we signed the contract and they said, all right, we want you on the show. So then they work with you for a few weeks on just crafting that first little 60 to 90 seconds that happens when you're on the show and introducing what you do. And then um, they called us and said, we need you out here next week, jump on a plane. And oh, in the meantime, though, we had read the autobiographies of all the sharks and we had had done practice shark tank sessions with friends of ours who were very experienced business people. Mm. So we got really good at knowing knowing our numbers, knowing you know the kind of questions they ask us. Oh, we also watched every episode of Shark Tank every episode of Canadian Dragon's Den and every episode of British Dragon's Den. We didn't watch the original from, uh, from Japan. So we had really just steeped ourselves in Shark Tank. And being on the show, um, it, it, it was shocking because first you're standing very far away from the sharks, unnaturally far away. It's very weird. Mm -hmm. Secondly, when you watch the show, it looks like a conversation, but in real time, it's far yeah. from it. Half the time, they're not paying attention to you. They're like making notes or trying to, you know, saying things to each other. Um, one of them will ask you five questions. And while you're on answer number three, another asks you 10 questions. And if you switch, the first one gets mad. And if you don't switch, the second one gets mad. And they're basically trying to keep you off your game the whole time, which didn't really happen for us. We were really clear about what we were doing. But even still, like, it's not what you see. It's a longer segment that gets to get edited down. So Barbara, for example hated me from the, she said, I hated you since the moment you walked out here. You look like my ex-husband. Do you smoke a pipe? I mean, she just went off on how much she hated me. 
And then she started going to Lena, like, what's wrong with you that you're married to this guy? And Lena was like, uh, what? She wasn't prepared to defend her marriage on national television. So I think the best thing she said was, well, he's not always like this, <laughs> which is uh, not really a, you know, a way to stand up for me, but that's okay. So, um, so it was crazy town. At one point, it became clear that Mark Cuban was a customer of mine when I had scriptware, which kind of deflated him a little bit. So that was pretty funny. Uh, that does not end up on the show. Uh -huh. And at one point, Robert says to me, so what do you think about those five toe shoes? And I said, oh, they've just created a wave of awareness and we're surfing on that wave. And he jumps out of his chair and yells at me, you have a perfect answer for every question. And I just look at him <laughs> sort of, I was kind of incredulous. I said, it's our business. So uh, so it was, a, it was just weird. And, but it was also kind of fun. And when we were leaving the tank, I just turned to Lena and said, wow, that is not what I expected. And, and we just then waited. So they tape more segments than they actually air. So you don't know if you're going to end up on the show or not mm. until about two weeks before the show, they'll call you. But even that doesn't guarantee you're going to be on the show. So we were just waiting, waiting, waiting. We took a vacation um, around Christmas time. And in the middle of our vacation, they called, you're going to be on the show in a couple of weeks. Like, ah, crap. So we we're trying to do public relations while we're in Ecuador visiting friends with practically no internet connectivity. So that was a lot of fun. And, um, uh, and the show did was great for us. I could not be more grateful because we ended up doing about three months worth of sales in the week following the show, which at that time yeah. was a big deal at this time is what we do in two days. So it's not, uh, uh it, <laughs> but, and we're, we're trying to get a follow up too, because we are one of the most successful companies that has been on Shark Tank. And, and it's helped people know who we are because when they see us in a context that's not a conversation and in what they think is a very high pressure situation, which I guess for many people it is, um, it gives them an, 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 an idea of who we are that is very, very helpful. And that continues to be the case because they still repeat it on CNBC every couple of months. Do you think zero shoes would have been like almost a, mil a 50 million dollar a year company if it wasn't for shark tank i think there are so many things that have gotten us to where we are that are 100 percent luck uh that i can't just ascribe all of this to any one of them because look here's the thing about the luck about shark tank i sent in you know two applications but they only saw one and more importantly, the only reason they responded to me is because the woman who called us, her boyfriend had just read Born to Run. So when she came across our email, she was already hip to what we were doing. Had that email gone to somebody else, we wouldn't have been on the show. I've, I've read somewhere that, you know, luck is when opportunity meets preparation. That's bullshit. So here's what I mean. <laughs> um, because, again... There were like a dozen people opening those emails for Shark Tank. How did it, the luck part is the right one opened the email. Our chief product officer, mm -hmm. we got, he's, he's been with us for 11 years. In fact, right before Shark Tank aired, we got him on our, in our company because A, he was walking his dogs one day instead of his wife doing it while a friend of ours is walking his dog instead of his wife doing it. The dogs knew each other, so they were hanging out. So these guys were talking. This guy says, hey, what do you do? He says, I'm the global product officer at Crocs. Oh, my friend Steve and Elena have a shoe company. At that time, we were selling a do-it-yourself sandal-making kit. We did not have a shoe company. 
um, Dennis says, oh, well, you know, you should give them my number. So, you know, our friend gave him, uh, gave us his number. I sat on it for months thinking, what am I going to do to, in talking to a guy who's been in footwear for 35 years, who's got this super high paying job. I mean, all right. So one day I called him, what the hell we got together. It was supposed to be a half hour lunch. It turned into four hours. And at the end he said, I said, I'd love to work with someone like you someday, but uh, you know, maybe someone younger just getting started in the business, but they, they're clearly talented. He says, well, what about me? I said, well, you're working for a big company making a lot of money. Is I just retired. I went, you're hired. So had he not just <laughs> retired, in addition to meeting because of the dogs, right. had he not been retired, there was no way he would have worked for us. So we definitely took advantage of the opportunity that 100% out of our control luck put in front of us. But why? I mean, I didn't make him say, I want to work for you. You know, you know like we work really hard. We're smart people. But literally, look, let's start with this. If it weren't for the fact that some friend of a friend brought Lena to brunch on the day that I showed up with my then fiance to go have uh, find a wedding venue and all that transpired where she eventually decided to become a friend of mine, then my girlfriend, then my fiance, then my wife, this would not be here at all. So the luck of that weird meeting started all of this. I also wanted to ask... Um... You have been a very successful entrepreneur, comedian, and I don't think it's luck. I think it's like hard work and you have the right skills to master a business or like with marketing or SEO. And I wanted to ask, like, what advice would you give to a young entrepreneur who are starting their first company? Well, actually, I only have one piece of advice, but it's it's a small piece of advice. The The biggest piece of advice is is simply that it's like, you know, when I say get a government job with a pension, if it gives anybody any pause, then they should just get a government job with a pension. If it Because if you're a real entrepreneur, there's literally nothing I could tell you that's going to stop you from pursuing an idea that statistically is probably stupid. And because, I mean, look, I've had hundreds of them that did not pan out or that were stupid or that I tried or whatever it was. So, but the only piece of, the best piece of advice I can give is simply this. Because as entrepreneurs, we fall in love with our ideas and we assume other people will think the same thing we do. We're usually wrong. And so the first thing you want to do is as quickly and inexpensively as possible, find people who do not know who you are, who are willing to give you their hard earned money for what you're offering. In the old days, the way they used to mm -hmm. do that is you'd run a full page ad in some magazine with a coupon and you wouldn't even have the product yet. You would wait and see how much money you made from people sending right. in that coupon with checks. And if it was enough to justify making the product, then you make it as fast as you can because you had 30 days to make it. Or you just give them all their money back and then you you know figure out how long it takes and then you launch the product. But people would use that as a way of determining whether they're, they had a real product. You can do the same thing now. You can build a website for the product. You can run ads right. on Facebook or on in Google and see what kind of right. response you get. Um, get people all the way to checkout and then say, oops, there's an error you know, we can't take your order now. Give us your email. You know, we'll contact you when we solve that. I mean, there's ways that you can you can prove it, and that would be my advice: prove that it, prove that your idea has value, independent of what you think. I'm sure COVID, you know, before COVID, this trade war has been really tough for a lot of entrepreneurs. So how was it for you in Zero Shoes? Tough. Um, it ended up being great for us in the long run. But dealing with it in real time was very difficult. So the trade war, that was the first hit. 
where we footwear already has very, very high import taxes, like 37% or more sometimes. So when so the first thing that happened to us was when there was the suspicion that the Trump administration was going to add new taxes, all these bigger footwear brands went to the factories that we also used and said, we need our shoes in advance of the, that tariff. So we were supposed to have our shoes made, and then we got pushed to the back of the line. So we had a period of time in 2019 where we didn't have inventory, and that was a problem. And then we had to fly it in, which cost us a lot of money. So that was a problem. And then we had product that was on the water coming here from our factories when they announced the increase in the tariffs. And we had to suddenly pay these new taxes that we didn't have the money for. So we had to raise that money somehow. And so that was a problem. And then we ordered, we were afraid that there was going to be another tariff increase in January because that's what they were saying. So we ordered a whole lot of product for the end of 2019. And we were not profitable in 2019 as a result of that. In 2020, when we were looking for some Mm -hmm. investors, they said, yeah, but you weren't profitable last year. So this is all going downhill. And we said, no, it's because, and we explained it and they didn't give us any credit for that. Ironically, when COVID kicked in and we were the only company that had product to sell, then they thought we were geniuses, but they still wouldn't give us any credit for what happened in 2019. (laughs) It's like, you can't have it both ways, but you know, it was their money. So they called the shots. Then, of course, with COVID, mm-hmm. everybody thought the world was going to end in March, or in March, everyone thought the world was going to end. We were committed yeah. to not laying anybody off, to keeping people working, which was difficult because our sales dropped by 75% in March. In April, a mm-hmm. large retail order got canceled, and we needed them to carry that product because we were going to update that product later. And if we had to sell it all, we would have all this extra when we were already committed to doing the upgrade. So we decided to, to say, look, you know, A, help us keep people employed and B, help us because our retail order got canceled. We'll sell you the product at our wholesale price. And we thought we'd sell 5,000 mm-hmm. pairs and we sold 15,000 pairs. And we're wow. going, well, that's great, but that was in April. What's going to happen in May when we're not trying to close out inventory? Well, May was better than April and June was better than May and July was better than June because people realized in COVID – the only thing they could do was like go for a walk or go for a run or go for a hike. So mm-hmm. we did really, really well. Mm-hmm. And then um, uh, the trade wars thing is still an issue, frankly. We're still paying exorbitant amounts of money in, in import duties. And also then the supply chain problem happened once COVID started unwinding right. because, for a list of reasons. So it used to cost $2,000 to rent a container to carry your product across the ocean. Those prices went up to thirty, thirty-five thousand dollars $35,000. So that became problematic. And, um, uh, and we, we're basically this year was when we finally came out of it. And of course, this year has been entertaining because people are saying, well, you know, companies are struggling post COVID and uh, we're still growing and growing profitably. So um, we're really Um, thrilled. And in large part, again, because of our customers who, once they start wearing our shoes, they don't want to wear anything else. And we don't need to work that hard to say, by the way, here's some you know, new things that we just developed that we hope you like. So we're doing, we're doing well, but those last three years have been, were very, or three and a half years, very challenging. When you started this company, it was a, you know, make it yourself shoe kit company. And now you guys are doing like $50 million a year. And you as a person who started this company, I'm sure has evolved in like last 
few years when the company grew, um, what were the skill set did you have to learn as the company was growing? It's a really good question. Uh, yeah, we went from a do-it-yourself sandal kit company to now 39 styles of casual and performance boot shoes and sandals, which is kind of crazy. Uh, from you know running things out of our home to now having an 85,000 square foot warehouse uh, that's already going to you know be too small in a few years. Um, the biggest thing for me, I don't have a quote management style, uh, or more accurately, my management style is extremely hands-off, much to my detriment. I'm not suggesting this is good. This is just the way my brain works. I bring people in and I expect them to do a good job and be dedicated to what they're doing. And that's not often the case. Sometimes you find people who seem like they're going to be good. And when they get into the mix, it turns out they're not a good fit for some reason. I mean, my line is all companies rise to the level of the neuroses of their founders. So one of mine is I don't think hierarchically. I don't treat people that way. Um, anyone who calls me boss is probably not going to last here very long. So what I've been trying to learn to do, and trying is the operative word, is learning how to be more of a manager than someone who's doing everything, which again requires bringing on the right people and hopefully discovering that if they don't have the, all the skills we need, I can impart them and they will figure it out over time. Um, it's really hard to find really good people who can do all the things that I would like and at a price that we can afford. I mean, $50 million is a lot of money, but it's not like you know that money's going into my pocket. We're using most of the profit to buy inventory for next year because of how fast we're growing. So we have to bring in people who, you know, I mean, the people that we brought in lately are expensive. They're making way more money than I am. And finding out um, how to do that in a way that works for my brain is very, very, to manage it is very, very challenging because um, I'm not good at teaching people simple things, which is not my skill set. Um, and it's very uh, it's going to sound funny, physically draining for me to have to, you know, edit someone's work over and over and over. Um, so I, I guess arguably the best thing, the biggest thing I'm, the best thing I'm learning, I don't, I'm not a control freak. I don't want to run. I don't want to do everything. I prefer not to do anything, frankly, but <laughs> is to bring in the people who think as much like I do as possible so maybe they're not going to be 100%, but if they're 80%, that's good enough. And then have them hopefully know how to handle everybody else that you know we're dealing with. So things get done correctly in a timely manner without me having to oversee it. And frankly, I guess the best thing I could say is the answer to your question is I'm a work in progress. And it's for someone like me who, I'm going to say this literally, unfortunately, can do a lot of this stuff really, really well, better than most people. That's a problem. Um, the advantage is I can I, I know that when I've hired someone, or even when we're interviewing someone, if someone's good or bad. Uh, but so I'm I don't end up dealing with a lot of people who really couldn't do do the job, even though they think they could. Um, but because I, yeah. I I've been doing this for longer than some of the people that we're hiring have been alive, and I'm I'm good at it. It's um, again I'm not trying to hold on and be in control, but I'm very demanding. Because what got us here is being really good. And if we're going to keep growing, we need to keep being really good.
So hopefully I'll figure something out or I don't know what will happen. How do you separate your personal life and your professional life? The thing about the two of us is we have very different skill sets and we respect each other's skill set. So I may have some opinions that I will share with her about some aspect of what she's doing and vice versa. But fundamentally, you know, after we do that, the other person is going to make the appropriate decision. And we kind of leave it at that. Um, we know how to work with each other. And it's been wonderful, miraculous, so delightful to watch Lena turn into this incredibly brilliant business person. I mean, she was smart to begin with, but just seeing how she's evolved blows my mind. I don't obviously have the same perspective of myself. I don't know what I have or haven't done. In my head, I'm still 20 years old. So, you know, I don't know what I'm like as a, anything else um, when it comes to the business. I'm sure she'd have an opinion about things that I've grown in ways, ways that I have and ways that I haven't, frankly. Um, but, I, but we rarely have the, that same perspective from ourselves. I know that there's things that I can do now that I couldn't do before. Someone will say I'm starting a business and they show me the balance sheet and the profit and loss or their pro forma. And I can, and I can look at it and sometimes tell immediately what's wrong with it without even knowing why I've found that thing. But from looking at so many, I just kind of, mm. you got to kind of get a gist of something and you can see when something's wrong. Um, it just kind of calls your attention. So that's interesting. I mean, I, I undeniably have, more marketable job skills now than I did 13 years ago, but I hope I never have to use them anywhere else. I mean, I've never had a job that I didn't create. I've never had a resume for, you know, other than acting. Wow. You never interviewed? No. No, I want to do that someday just to see what it's like. What's it like? <laughs> I mean, really, I have no idea. Uh, I mean, for uh, software engineering, it's uh, four or five rounds of interviews. And is it is it... Uh, just problem solving stuff or I mean what are the things that they do yeah it's a it's a mix of problem solving interpersonal skills you know they, they some of the behavioral questions as well how would you respond in a given situation so for 90% it's problem solving and <laughs> <laughs> But in reality, it's different. Reality is always different. But I mean, I had a couple of programmers in my day who couldn't carry on a conversation with another human being and were just utterly brilliant. I'm not saying that everyone should be like that or is like that. But, you know, yeah. you need at least one in a company who, you know, you don't even know what the hell that guy or woman is doing, but they just somehow pull it together and it's like, okay. But if you ask them, you know, do you want to go out for a drink? Uh, that's just not going to work. We would like to think we're different, but you, and and look, you may be. I I don't know. Um, uh, it, there's not look. I have I have some friends who are very high level software engineers who are fine people. They have great interpersonal skills, um, and I know people who are the opposite. And I know comedians same way. There are a few comedians that I know who I used to joke. It's a good thing they they're doing comedy. Otherwise, the president would need more security. You know, it just there there are people of various levels of. Um, human interaction <laughs> skills and uh, than others. It's yeah. It's there, there's no one size fits all. But you've seen it. I mean, there's some of these. I'm sure there's a couple of engineers that you know. You literally can't have a conversation with them, and you can't figure out how they're doing what they're doing, and they just crank it out day after day after day. Yeah, it's true. Stephen, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, I think this is a good time where we can probably end the uh, podcast. Right. Okay, let's call it a day. Uh, Thank you so much. Uh